Navigating the road to success in the entertainment industry can be daunting, but we're here to help keep you centered. Undetoured, navigating the artist's journey. My next guest has shared the screen with some of this industry's biggest heavyweights, including Tom Cruise, Woody Harrelson, Mahersha Ali, Cynthia Revo, John Bernthal, Michelle Monaghan, David Harbour. The list goes on and on. He's worked with directors like Clint Eastwood and Rob Reiner. Not only that, but he's been a teacher for over a decade, and he has been teaching for the last seven years at one of Atlanta's most premier acting studios, Drama Inc. He's also a great online resource for the actor's mind, heart, and spirit, and offers weekly industry tips and resources through Beyond Acting. On top of that, he finds time to help people on Facebook through his Facebook group, The Approach, which is designed to support, motivate, and uplift with a collaborative environment. Let's drop in on the conversation I had with Alex Collins, who you may know as Dr. Midnighter on CW's Stargirl late last year. Welcome back to Basecamp, my fortress of geekitude. And today I am so grateful to have snagged a little bit of time of a dear friend of mine whose legacy lives beyond just all the heavyweights that he's been on scene op- on screen opposite, but his true legacy will also live through the work that he's given back to the community at large in the United States. He's been a mentor for so many people and has served on so many different committees for SAG-AFTRA and on boards. And not only that, he is committed to not only making his career successful, but making sure everyone around him is built up as well. I am so grateful to him and his time and welcome, please, Alex Collins. Woo, that's a, that's a career intro right there, Sloan. Thank you, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so grateful to you. I um, was thinking about who I wanted on this podcast because the whole idea of this podcast is to help people get undetoured in their lives. So um, actors sometimes feel that maybe they're just not getting it and they feel like I just need to stop this or I Mm. need to take a different direction. And if that's a case, And it's totally fine and natural because as creative artists, we're always pivoting and we've been able to pivot Mm -hmm. even during the most recent times, the pandemic, to make sure that we're always just creating, right? But the goal of this was to help people realize that their journey is one in all, right? Like we are all kind of one unit and and we function as that unit to illuminate life at its most truest and authentic form and you as a teacher is able to demonstrate that and illuminate it in such a way that's different than most normal like just not normal but i say actors that are not taking on the role of being a mentor and a teacher as well I just wanted to kind of go back, if we could, to when you were a child. Did you always know that you wanted to be a storyteller? And did you have the support system in place in order to create that? Uh, that's a really good question. My So I was born and raised in England. Um, and I grew up, the only thing I really wanted to do was be a professional soccer player, right? Or football football player, you know? And I was pretty good when I was young. Um, and so really all of my energy went into that. And there's a lot of corollary between 
athletics and entertainment, right? They're, they're, they're artistry. We, when we watch the Olympics every four years because it's beautiful and, and it's artistic and it's uh, emotional and the peaks and valleys of victory and defeat. And there's, so there's a lot of crossover. So I think subconsciously or underneath, there was some of that storytelling through sport that I really, I wasn't cognizant of at the time. Um, and grow, growing up, I had great support from, from my family to, to be an athlete, to be a soccer player. And that was supposed to be my profession. And then we, we moved to the United States. And unfortunately, we moved at a time when soccer here was not where, where it is today. The coaching depth and quality wasn't there. The playing depth and quality wasn't there. The opportunities weren't there. And so that was like a real pivot point for me you know, what, what a wonderful thing to be able to move to the United States and all of the opportunities that that presents. People want to come to this country every day for a variety of reasons. But for me, it was actually a negative, right? Because it, it meant um, a delay or an elimination of my growth as a soccer player. I was still able to play college division one soccer and I played professionally very, very briefly. Um, but it, that was it. I didn't reach the pinnacle of what I was supposed to do. And I wasn't emotionally strong enough, mentally strong enough. I was riding on my natural abilities as an athlete, not my strength as a human when I was in college. And then that, that cost me, that cost me, I believe. But what it did is it showed me how and why I needed to be stronger as an artist, know, knowing that a lot of those lean times would happen as an artist. Yeah crazy. Yeah, I love that the correlation that you made between the, um, of the two, because I feel like a lot of people don't realize what an art form in sports are and right. know, dedication that it goes into the dedication of that. And I think that that probably gave you a uh up in this industry because what it did is it gave you that discipline that not a lot of artists are taught in school. We don't teach, maybe now we do, but when I was in school, we didn't teach the business of being a CEO of your own career. And athletes, you see that so much. I mean, it's, you just see the discipline in them and it's like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a, a beautiful thing and a daunting thing as an artist because a lot of us are ADD. I know I am. And, you know, we just, everything kind of like lands on us and, and it bogs us down. So I want you to talk a, a little bit about that transition of when you realized, was it in school that you realized this or was it like after school that you realized you wanted to, you know, transition? When, when I had started becoming an actor, I mean, I, I, I did plays as a little kid. I did some theater in high school, but it wasn't until I really dove in with both feet uh, as, a, as a young adult um, into the world of acting on camera, acting specifically. So at that point, I didn't know what I would be applying for my sports career as an artist. I, I didn't know. I wasn't aware of it. I just dove in head first. I was taking classes and learning script analysis and, you know, building a character and how to improvise and not be so stiff, right? Just feel comfortable in front of people, in front of being judged or critiqued or what have you, which I never, as an athlete, I never had to worry about that. I was just doing my thing as a soccer player, right? And pe people watched and they liked it or they didn't like it or we won or we lost. But, like that was it. At the end of the game, there was, a, there was nothing to like reflect back on. 
yeah, you would look at notes and stuff, but you weren't looking at yourself and be like, oh, why did I look so different there or weird there or uncomfortable there like we do as an artist? Like we immediately go to the worst parts of our personality. Sorry, my, my puppy is engaging with us here. Hey, you relax. Um, so it wasn't until love, I had love dogs. <laughs> we love yes, dogs. we love dogs. So it wasn't until you know I had a few years' experience as an actor, then I started realizing, oh, I'm I'm auditioning. Uh, I'm hearing no a lot, or or in our business, we don't hear at all. We only hear the yeses. We don't really hear the noes. We just accept them as noes, right? And so that wears away at your confidence and chips away at your uh, comfortability as a human. Why, why me? Why not me? Why am I being rejected? Why? But it's not rejection. We know that later when we're more mature. But at that point, when you're first getting into it, I think then there was a light switch and go, okay, I didn't book this job. Why not? What are all the, the reasons? It's like, well, I didn't get to play for this team. Why not? What are all the reasons? And, and so I was able to use sort of some, some crossover. As a goalie, there's only one of me on the team. If there's already somebody that's better than me as an athlete or, so, or somebody who works better with this group of 10 other athletes, there's not a place for me. doesn't mean they don't like me personally. It doesn't mean it's a knock on my personality or my abilities. It just means that some other team is the right fit for me. And it's the same with acting. If I'm not right for that show, it's because someone else is a better fit. It's not personal. It's never personal. But that's easier said than done, isn't it? Right? Like it takes a long time for us to figure that out. And up to that point, it, it hurts you. It hurts your heart. It hurts your, it hurts your consciousness. It hurts your brain and logic functioning centers. Um, and when I was starting out, this is, this is pre-social media. This is pre-talking about mental health. This is pre-collaborating with other artists in a safe space beyond your acting class to just talk about the rigors of the industry. Like we never had any of that like we do today. So I think it's a double-edged sword. There's so much more opportunity to ask a question and get it answered from a collective, whomever the, that, those people are. But then there's also extra noise. How do you know who is a valid source of an answer or a qualified answer? It's just really difficult to cut through the noise because social media makes everything available, which sometimes that can be a bad thing. Yeah, and I think what you do, you help people cut through the noise. And, and there is so much noise that we have, especially like you said, as younger artists and not to say that younger artists are in the wrong here. It's just finding mm. out who you are and knowing that there's no, there has to be no ego in this. If we take out the ego from this profession, which is so hard to do, <laughs> this is a very ego centric profession. Yeah. What, where would we be then, right? Like if we were just right. creating like with joy unbridledly and not worrying about the outcome of it, how much more freeing would that be in our work even? Yeah, I mean, little little kids on a playground, they play make-believe or they play in a sandbox and they, there's, no, there's no end goal, right? There's no ulterior motive, there's no objective. It's just being in the moment and having fun which is what we're supposed to do as artists. But as we get older, we become more self-conscious and self-aware and ego-driven, even if we don't mean to be. And even if we try and you know reduce the ego, it does factor in. I mean, it factors into everything we do 
why do we wear the clothes that we wear? Why do we cut the hair, our hair, the way we cut our hair? Because their appearance and ego is part of what we do. We just need to figure out a way for us and us as each individual person and everybody's process is different is how do, how do we do it in such a way that it doesn't override the decisions that we make or the opportunities that we pro, you know, chase after. Um, and there's, when you're younger and earlier in your career, and yes, younger doesn't mean age, younger just means the t- length of time that you've spent in this business. When you're younger or newer or greener, any of those terms, you, you don't know what you don't know, which can sometimes be a great thing because you are one of those little kids in the sandbox and you're just doing it for fun and you're having a good time. And then you sign with your first agent and now you feel like there's pressure. Well, I have to book. Oh, it's been a year. I haven't booked anything. They're going to drop me. Maybe, maybe not. But that's that shouldn't factor into how you approach the work because the, the less joy that you're bringing to the table and the more pressure that comes into things, you can't have a unique, organic and creative experience when that happens. But it's so hard. Yeah, it is. But it's palpable because I've talked to many people about this and it's that energy that you're putting out. And I'm all about energy work. When you said, how can we kind of take the ego out? One of the ways that I do it is I meditate. I actually Mm. meditate before doing auditions. I meditate before going on set and meditation looks different in all different forms, but I do a form of Qigong energy work, which I've worked with, with people. And um, you'll hear me talk a lot about in this podcast because I feel that it's extremely beneficial. Um, it's a 5,000 year old practice that stems from yeah. and China. And I was able to um, learn it there as well as here. And I felt like for me, just being in that gap of quietness and like connecting to true source, whatever you deem as your true source, I call God, um, that that is where a creativity comes in, but also the ego is, is, is able to let go. You're able Mm. to just, you know, be, because that's what anyone as a casting director or director just wants you to, they just want you to be authentically you. We talked about this on panels before you and I about authenticity and factors into just that palpable feeling like they don't know what it is but they just it's just not right or they know exactly when they see that person oh yeah and it's it's an exuding feeling that you give off Mm. it's an actual field of energy they've they've determined in science there is a field of energy that you give off when you walk into a room you know these people you walk into a room and they just light it up when they come in you know yeah it's it's really interesting talking about that because in in our market in Atlanta and the Southeast, we've been predominantly doing self tapes for years and years and years versus other markets who are just slowly catching up to that. But they've, you know, prior to the pandemic, they were heavily in person and both in person and self tape can work to your advantage or they can work to your detriment. So if we talk about in-person auditions, right, you have to get your mind right while you're driving over there and you're parking and you're walking into the building and you know you're you're stealing yourself for battle, so to speak. You know the audition room or the waiting room, there's psychological warfare in the waiting room. So you put your headphones in so you can tune everybody else out so you can focus, your game face is on and you go in that room authentically and organically and you rock it and then you go home and you take your battle armor off and you decompress and you let that energy go some people they 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 flounder in that waiting room 
oh, he's so much better looking than me. There's no way they're going to cast me. Whoa, there's 20 women who all look the same and I don't look anything like that. Why did they even bother with me? Oh, as opposed to the opposite narrative that we would tell ourselves, I'm a wild card. Look at how vanilla all of these people look. I'm going to rock this. I'm going to stand out in the right ways, right? So inner monologue is everything. But because now everything has shifted to self-tapes, we don't get to steal ourselves. We don't get to play the mental games to strengthen ourselves because we set up the taping room in, in a spare bedroom or it's in the dining room and it's always permanently there. It's just part of our house and our fixtures. So we don't really have that compartmentalization. We just walk in there, right? And I think what actors also do is they don't structure their auditions. They'll, they'll take as long as they need to, to get it right. But there is no getting it right, first of all. And second of all, that's, that's not practicing how you play because you're not going to get 50 takes on set and you're not going to get 50 takes in the audition or the callback. So something needs to happen in our home practice where the fifth, like, okay, go set everything up. If you need to set up your taping room, go set it up, get the lights on, get the camera on, get your script in place, tell your reader, Hey, in 15 minutes, honey, we're We're going to tape this. Okay. I'll see you in there. And then go do what you need to do. And if that's your meditation or if that's listening to a, you know, a motivational podcast or something, or if that's just listening to you know, quiet music or, or whatever you need to do, stretch, get your instrument ready. Then when you walk into your taping room, you're ready to go. And you should set a timer. I firmly believe in setting a timer because if you went to a taping facility, you're on the clock, you're paying for the privilege. So why wouldn't you do the same thing at home? Because I really believe, especially for larger media roles, you're not going to discover it on the eighth take or the 10th take or the 12th take. You either did the homework or you didn't. Now, sure, you do one to feel the reader out and the chemistry. You do the second one to nail it. You do the third one just to make sure you've got it. And then maybe the fourth is an alternate or a contrasting take on it, what have you. But once you get six, seven, eight takes and above, like, it's, there's a law of diminishing returns. You would never in an academic setting go into a midterm, a calculus midterm, and sit there for an hour. And then in the second hour go, I got it now. I understand calculus now. Like, no, you either did the work before you stepped into the exam room or you didn't. And acting is really similar. Yeah. God, that's such a great point too, because usually with takes, I do like two or three, like you said, I just get it mm -hmm. out of there, don't think about it. And then I really usually don't ever think about it again, right? I just let it go. Right. I'm like, that was fun. I don't even you know. Just, you just, you hit the three most important words in an actor's vocabulary, let it go. Because what that, that, that you, you talk about the energy, it physically takes the weight off of you. You don't have any expectation on it. And when you get a phone call a week later, it's, it's icing on a cake. It's a bonus, right? Versus if you're mired down and like, well, I really wanted that one. I really, I felt really good about it. Yeah. But statistically you're not going to book it. That's just the math of the business, right? If 50 people auditioned for it, you have a 2% chance. So why are you allowing a 2% opportunity to just put that weight on you? when you should be focusing on the 90%, 98% likelihood that you're not going to book it, but that actually frees you up to be weightless for the next opportunity and the next opportunity. So you're not adding this trauma to your body. You just move forward without it. And it's such a great, oh my gosh. Oh, what, what project was that? Oh, right. Yeah, great, great, great. I've literally had to do that before. Like, which one? <laughs> Me too, yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so you're so wonderfully analytical, which I am not. Um, so, okay, let me let me ask you this though. What if it is something that is in a wonderfully iconically monumental opportunity that you know, wow, if I book this, it will change my life. Let's say, you know, a comic book character from the 1940s that's never been played before, <laughs> that you have the opportunity to literally be stepping in to the life of. Yeah. Yeah, look, I think we get excited. Our brain wants to get excited. Our heart gets excited. Our nervous system wants to get excited about the hope and the, the potentiality of things. And that's great. And I think you can give yourself a window of time to be excited. Did you it's get the same window of time? In that example, no. I'll get I'll get back to that though. Um, the other side of the coin is also true. If you feel like you tanked an audition or a callback in the room with the decision makers, give yourself a, a small period of time to mourn, right? Pre-celebrate and, and then pre-mourn and then move on because neither of them are within your control. You have no, you could have been the best auditioner out of everyone they ever saw for that role and not book it. You're too tall compared to the co-star. You're better looking than the lead and, and, and there's ego involved, so they won't cast you. You look just like the decision maker's ex-spouse and they don't wanna look at your face for five weeks, whatever it is, right? There's all these decisions that are way out of your control. So you can't let those things live rent-free in your head. So what you do, again, let's use the analogy of driving to a physical audition, not a self-tape. So you, you've done the audition, you kick butt, you feel great about it, then allow yourself to celebrate all the way home. Think about yourself playing that character. Think about the what ifs and the podcasts you're gonna do and the panels you're gonna sit on and the signings you're gonna do and the action figures you're gonna get sent. Cool, when you get home, put that away. Move on to the next opportunity or go hug your kids or go walk your dog or all the things that you need to do because life Life is 98% of everything. Acting is such a small part of what we do. We don't need to hang on. Then the flip side of that coin is also true, Sloan. If you feel like you tanked it, then mourn on the way home. What, what could, analyze, what could I have done differently? Did I really truly commit to the emotional life of that character? Did I really invest enough time on the script analysis? Why did I drop the ball there? But also then when you pull into your driveway in both situations, your audition is never as good as you thought it was. But the upside is your audition was never as bad as you thought it was, right? That's why an actor should never apologize in the room because the casting director might've loved what you did even though it wasn't what you built up in your head of what you could have done. So if you'd have just said, thanks so much for the opportunity, have a great day, you go into your car, they look at the writer and they go, wasn't she great? Meanwhile, you're like, oh, I'm never going to book this. But at that point, they love you. But if you finish and we see your shoulders drop and then you go, thanks, thanks for seeing me. I'll have a good day or I'll see you next time. They're already like, what's she bummed about? Well, maybe she wasn't that good. Right. And now you've put a seed in their head that was never there in the first place. So allow yourself the celebration. Allow yourself the morning. Don't think you're so great that you booked it. And don't think you're so bad that you didn't. It's it's. You know, easier said than done, but 
the shorter lifespan something has, and the more you can embrace, let it go, the longer you can survive in this career. This career is such a war of attrition. Just organically, every year you're here, the higher up the mountain you go. It's just, it's one foot in step in front of the other, right? How do you climb Everest? One step at a time. Yeah, that's such a true word. And then there's also the valley. That's the good. valley. You know? Yeah. yeah. But you don't, if, if, you, if you look at things as a, as a graph, if you look at life or your career as a graph, you, you can only have valleys if there are peaks. Otherwise, it's a straight line, right? So you actually, as an artist, you need those valleys. They make you a more empathetic human. They make you, ha uh, you have more life experience in your tool belt, right? And so those, while you're going through the muck and mire, it might not be that enjoyable. But as an artist, you go, okay, this breakup is going to help me at some time. Getting fired from this job is going to help me at some time. I'm going to be able to pour that into a character somewhere. <laughs> so, you know, in the moment, it doesn't feel so good, but those are all the things that help you improve as an artist. Absolutely, because we're illuminating life. It all goes back That's to it. being a mirror for what's going right. on in society so people don't feel alone in this world, which, you know, you guys have heard me say on this podcast many times. <laughs> it's what it comes down to. We kind of do that noble yeah. job. We so do. We had a dip that kind of like, through a wrench in just your life and it could be personal it could be you know business oriented but have you had like something that it was hard to pull out of or I mean I, I have dips all the time you know some of them are blips some of them are dips some of them are valleys but just I, I, I'm at the beginning of my 22nd year of this career and at least once a year I want to quit at least once a year I question my talent at least once a year, I go, why am I banging my head against the wall? Nobody loves me. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to bring me onto their project. And then I allow myself to feel that. I don't allow myself to wallow in it too long. I change whatever I'm doing at that time. If I'm sitting in my office doing something, then I've got to go outside and, and, you know, or I'll play, play with the dog or you know, hang out with friends. I've got to do something to flip that and realize, well, hey, life isn't so bad. I'm just by being here, I'm in a privileged position that so many people would kill for, right? Our business is a combination of an unending, forever climbing ladder. And no matter where you are on the ladder, somebody's ahead of you, right? You're climbing these rungs and you see somebody's feet above you. It doesn't matter if you're Denzel, Washington, or Meryl Streep, they have people above them right? People where they want to be, but you keep, you hang on and you keep climbing. That's what you do. Um, but it's also like a, a, a hamster wheel. It's like a ladder and a hamster wheel because it's, it never stops. It's never ending, but that can really mess with your head. If you, if you turn to the negative part of that, but then if you look at the positive using the ladder analogy, there's somebody looking up at you wishing they were where you are. And, I, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? I have a great, I have a great career. I have a lot going on. I've done, I've been able to do a lot of things and work with a lot of people that I didn't have 
five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And so I realized I was here on this ladder and now I'm here and tomorrow I'll be here. And five years from now I'll be here. And so you just, you just keep plugging along. And I think it's important to note how the people on the ladder rung above you that have, you've graced the screen with some amazing heavy, yeah. heavy hitters in our industry how they treat people and then yeah that's such a, a wonderful education of how you should treat people going onto a set knowing and you talk about this a lot and we we've talked about this together about knowing everyone's name even the production assistant because that production absolutely probably be a director one day yeah and just like treating everyone like a human how important right hugely hugely important i learned i learned a really valuable lesson in my very first studio film the accountant um which right. you know that you know that movie well um yeah you know gavin o'connor oscar nominated director um and ben affleck is the lead and anna kendrick and jk simmons and john bernthal and gene smart i mean really really great people top to bottom bill dubuque wrote it who also created ozark you know, so a really, a really good pedigree of folks in there. And I learned a lot with John Bernthal. That's the only person I worked with in the movie. Um, and we had multiple stunt rehearsals before we shot. And we, and he wanted to have rehearsals outside of that to just hang out and get to know each other. And he said two things to me that were really valuable that I took away. The first thing he said in our first meeting, he said, how can we make our scene better? And this is a guy who had just come off of Walking Dead. He was famous. He was just, he just filmed Wolf of Wall Street with Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. He's, he's not, at that point, he wasn't quite an A-lister, but he was on his way. You know, he just spent a year working with Brad Pitt in a World War II movie. And he was about to become the Punisher the next year, you know. So the guy, the guy's a heavyweight. And he says, how can we make our scene better? That language has an impact on another person, right? And, and that was a big takeaway for me. And then the second takeaway for me was, I really appreciate your feedback in terms of how we can make our scene better together because this is my character's introduction to the movie and I'm nervous. I wanna make sure I get it right. I wanna do a good job so this film will be the best it can be. So here's somebody who's already worked with all those great people He's already pretty much a household name and he still got that nervousness of wanting to make sure he's putting his best foot forward. So the, it told me the two things I ever needed to know, collaboration, right? We are colleagues, no matter what number on the call sheet we are, we are colleagues. And number two, nervousness doesn't go away. We're just at a different rung on the ladder and knowing how to process that nervousness can, can enhance or can stifle really crazy yeah and it's so true when you say the nervousness being on the rung of that ladder probably totally trumps any kind of nerves we would have because they have so much more yeah. shoulders right at that point they're kind of you know feeling a lot <laughs> to try to show up and be the best that they can be just like yeah we are as well but for them it feels like bigger stakes maybe are in right yeah. Really interesting that you said yeah. that he said that because collaboration is so important. I've I've like 
gotten uh, some wonderful opportunities to work with people and they were always a very collaborative process mm -hmm. they were yeah listers that didn't need to give me the time to be collaborative but they did right and it, yeah it stuck with me it stuck with me because it was like okay this is how you treat people this is this is what it feels like to really yeah. be an artist and not just someone that comes in for a day or two or for a couple of weeks and look, it really, it takes very minimal effort for an A-lister to be warm and pleasant, but the ripple effect of what it can do to a day player or a co-star or that person who's got their first booking and they're very nervous on the inside, it can, it can help anchor them. It can help make them shine. It can help settle them down. And, and that A-lister will never know that. They'll never know what positive impact it had. And then the converse is true, right? If they're brusque or cold or uh, if you like they ignore you then that can oh my gosh it's something about me and and that can hurt that that sort of artistic flower from blooming that's not to say as actors lower on the ladder we shouldn't be able to read the room right you you shouldn't proactively try and be best friends in the hair and makeup trailer with number one on the call sheet you have no idea what they have to emotionally do in the in the film that day with the scenes that you're not in Right. So they may be going through a lot. They may have just worked five 18 hour days in a row and they just need that 20 minutes of quiet and hair and makeup. It doesn't mean they're mean. It doesn't mean they're rude. It just means they're getting into their space before they need to do what they need to do as an artist. Um, but, you know, that's that's on us as humans to kind of read the room and gauge the situation. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a time and a place for <laughs> For that the yeah. um, interesting thing is i did get to thank the first person i worked with who made me feel calm because i worked with oh them. wow i got to work with them again this year that's great yeah yeah and um ron rico lee actually mm -hmm. um, survivor's remorse back in 2000 right. it was my first tv show and super duper you know nervous because there's like 250 extras all around us and I have to jump on to um, uh, <laughs> the lead characters back. And um, there was no like rehearsal really for it. And he had like this silky shirt on. So it was like slipping down his back <laughs> because, I mean, yeah. But Ron Rico, they, I mean, both him and Jesse uh, were so amazing, um, mm. so, welcoming and kind and considerate and i got to let them know which is wonderful and then and then of course what was great about it is um you know he uh introduced me you know to the director or talked to the director with me you know and it was like it felt when i was on that set it felt like the first time i felt like i was not the other you know like even though i was in for like a blip of a moment right so good because I had worked with the a producer on it too and he's like oh you gotta you know you'll you know, she'll, she'll do great you know kind of thing and um you know just having that interaction of having worked with two people before and the sound guy you know it was it, it felt comfortable right because yeah we're yeah comfortable and to make choices and so I was able to make and not bold choices that were like detrimental to the scene but I was able to take liberty right. Hey, can we try that one more time? I, I think I got something for you. I never got to do that before. In my mind, right. I never had permission to do that before. But they yeah. love it. 
they're like they did we did it got it in one take and they're like well if you want to do something again you know so so the you know why you never gave yourself permission before is because you came in thinking you weren't on the same level right that you didn't you weren't giving yourself permission to take up an equal amount of space and that's a perfect transition do you know who glenn morshauer is yeah so glenn glenn morshauer I want yeah. him on here so badly because he yeah. is a fountain. He like he directly gets True Source's message about ego and who we are as artists in this world. He is unbelievable. Yeah. So we we had the privilege of having him at our studio to speak at one point. We've uh, you know he he works in Atlanta all the time. He's amazingly uh, diligent as a teacher. He I mean constantly teaching. He teaches twenty four. For how long? He teaches 12 hours in two days, uh, Mondays and Tuesdays. He teaches two six hour classes in his studio in Dallas. And then he flies to LA or he flies to Atlanta if he's on the resident. The guy has more credits than, you know, probably 50 actors combined. He's everything. But there's a takeaway that will fix this imbalance. It will allow and empower any actor to take up the requisite amount of room that they need in any room that they're in or on any set. And it's a really simple philosophy. And he talks about this at length in a lot of his speaking engagements. So I don't want to steal any of his thunder, but give him his due credit because it sticks with me, even at the level I'm at, right? And what I'm doing. He says, when, when, when you go into an audition, change the narrative immediately because an audition is you seeking approval from someone else. I'm auditioning for you. I'm singing for my supper, so to speak, right? It's actually not an audition. It is a meeting. It's a meeting between professionals. We just occupy a different job in the pyramid, in the structure of the production. That's the writer, that's the casting director, I'm an actor. I'm giving you my interpretation as a professional, as a colleague, as a peer. And so when you get rid of, you, you don't audition anymore. You have meetings. And it's hard because we self-tape so we're not going into a room, but if you think about the same thing, I am a product and I'm giving you my best take. I'm a solution to the problem that you're having. And the problem you're having is casting this role. Well, I'm a solution. I'm giving you my interpretation. Thanks. Appreciate the meeting opportunity. See you later, right? Good luck with your project. So now you become a peer and a collaborator in the project, whether they choose your or not is incidental at that point. It doesn't matter, but you've gone from this to this. I'm talking with peers. I'm having an experience with peers. It makes it so much easier. And I know that they feel that as well, right? Like they'll yeah. feel that energy that you've brought to it, creating it as a meeting versus the audition. And it, right. something in their minds will click like, oh, wow. Okay. For, for, those, for those of us in the self-tape market, sometimes we have an embarrassment of riches. Sometimes we get too many auditions, right? which means we're like phoning in some of like, well, that one's least important to me. Let me just do that. And then this one is like nine pages and I really need to work on that. But if you, if you look at it, each of them as an opportunity to collaborate, then there's less of this and more of this. So you're not phoning it in as much because you realize, hey, this is my opportunity to collaborate with that team. And so here's my best interpretation, my solution for you for this project. Yeah, because we're all just puzzle pieces. I mean, it's all just puzzle pieces. Yeah.
just trying to make it all fit together. And if you don't book that one, obviously, like because you did such an amazing job, they're going to remember you. And I just was talking to a casting director yesterday that said, yeah, we save tapes sometimes and we remember them. You know, we remember people. So oh, yeah. Help them in the future. If something comes along, they'll be like, OK, this person was so, <coughs> you know, they didn't, you know, they didn't quite get it. But yeah, for sure, they're on top of the list. So being able to, you know, book the room, not the audition, mm -hmm. which there's a book out there <laughs> like that. There, there, there is. Yeah. Wow. So you have very specific things that you teach within the marketing aspect, because then, you know, besides all of the stuff we have to do to prepare and be authentically us in the room, we do have to make sure that this is a business and, yeah. and that we treat it as such. Can you go through a little bit about how you came up with your specific take on marketing, especially with day and age with social media and like what we should put on versus what we shouldn't put on versus having a professional page or having a personal page. Cause I know that they do look at those things, you know? Yeah. I think, I think it all gets back to authenticity. I mean, it, it, it's a big umbrella with a lot of things under the umbrella. So for me, you know, I've, I've, collaborated with a professional actor and marketer, Allison Hazelden, and she's the other half of Beyond Acting. So she actually leads all of our marketing and social media courses. And I'm, I'm a student of that, honestly, because I have my own philosophy on things, but then I realize that there's a, 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 a whole other way to professionally handle that. And, and she's really the champion of that. She's sort of the CEO of the marketing and the social media aspect. For me personally, how I handle mine is there's one part of me that's an actor consultant, right? So I'll sit down with an actor one on one and go through all their materials, their headshots, their resume, their demo reel and their clips, how they're labeling them, how the industry is going to buy them and perceive them. And then I give them an action plan on how they can make all these changes and go out into the world as it relates to their actor's access and how casting directors are going to see them or how agents are going to see them in their package. That's, that's one element. So then that's what I do one-on-one. -on -one. Then there's what Allison does with Beyond Acting in all of the marketing and social media. And then for me and my personal marketing, it's just about authenticity. All of these are about authenticity as well. Right. We could tell if someone's posting just to post, if someone's hashtagging just to hashtag, right? It's pointless. But for me, several years ago, I, I kind of wanted to be like, well, I'm going to do an acting post and then a personal post and then like a triathlon post and then an acting post and a personal post and then a triathlon post. And I realized that gets really boring really quickly because then you feel under pressure to post a certain way. And I realized that was taking me farther away from the authentic because it's like, well, this week I need to do a triathlon post. I don't feel like doing a triathlon. Yeah, but then it's going to mess up the grid on Instagram. My pictures are going to be out of order. And so I just stopped posting altogether. And I was like, I'm going to give myself permission to take a break. And then when I come back, I'll just post what I feel like posting, right? And so there's authenticity there. If you only want to post pictures about your puppy, fine. If you only want to post pictures about your kids, fine. Because that's part of who you are. And it's part of what you bring to the table as an artist. 
Moreover, when you are networking in person, there's nothing more boring than an actor who can only talk about acting, right? But if you, if you happen to see Mark Finn Cannon at a holiday party and you're like, hey, Mark, congratulations on your newest grandbaby. That's great, congratulations. How many is that now? Is that, is that six? Is that like six grandkids? That's awesome. Now, now you're not talking about the business at all. You're showing you're invested and interested in that person's life and you're celebrating that there's new kids around the Christmas tree this year and they're really excited about it. And he gets excited about it because of course, what, what grandpa doesn't want to talk about grandkids, right? And, and now you've had a 20 minute conversation that's had nothing to do with the industry whatsoever. And that's going to do a lot more organically because that person is going to remember that conversation. Right versus, well, I just booked this and I just came off of this show and I, I was in rehearsals for this play and like, cool. I mean, that's cool. That is cool as well. But that person has heard a thousand actors talk about that stuff. So you don't need to, you know, just focus on all of the acting thing. Well-rounded actors are far more interesting. Yeah, I want to just stay on this for just a moment because it, it is so important if you're listening out there to know that what we do is just one little facet of who we are and that it should not define us. As no. Then if we're not booking, then our self-definition is going to hinder our mental yeah. um, ability to feel like we're worth anything and mm -hmm. that can really go to some dark places for people especially during the pandemic i mean we lost so many people in this community here locally during the pandemic yeah. it wasn't just covid it was a lot of mental health um you know yeah changes. and I, and we see it we see it all the time with artists throughout this industry that's why they call us you know the tortured artists because you know we shouldn't define our self-worth by just that. And I think you know this best probably from all the work that you've done and just the life that you've led, but I know a huge portion of it was from that course we took together with Sam Christensen. I'm not, sure. I cannot express enough how amazing um, that program is for people on how to connect with who you are at your essence. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was, we had a, we had a really good group, a lot of whom are still in contact. And whether you're an artist or not, I mean, everyone, even accountants have artists within them, right? Engineers have artists within them. And it, that course allows you to connect to the authentic part of yourself that you might not be consciously aware of at some point, right? It allows you to tap into that because it's not how you perceive yourself, but it's how others view you and if we have a and a lot of time artists go through periods where they have a lot of self-doubt and negative self-talk but someone else might think you are the sun that shines every day and you're fantastic and you know who are you to say that they're wrong <laughs> right because they see something in you that you might not be capable of seeing today or this week or this month but that authentic thing that comes out you can't hide it yeah i mean it all comes down to like just being pure love if you can and when you can <laughs> you know yeah. that's, that's what that's what this world needs they need more loving artistry which is which is why i firmly believe without the pandemic ted lasso wouldn't be a hit show 
gosh, Ted Lasso. I mean, can we just talk about how we needed that as a society? Yeah, yeah. it was, it's, it's cheesy, it's schmaltzy, it's dad jokey. And in, in our regular flow of life, it wouldn't have struck a chord because we're too busy. People have watched an ep- would watch one episode and be like, okay, that's weird. I'm over that. I mean, Jason Sudeikis, that's a funny character, but I'm not, I'm not, no, no, no. But because it hit at a time when we needed something positive, we needed something light. It, it spoon fed us just enough of that, just enough of that folksy charm, fish out of water, we're gonna root for him. And then it hit us over the head with so many more messages, deeper messages, right into the second season. Um, I mean, the second season is not even really about Ted. It's about everybody else. And, and I think it, it's genius, but it's fortuitous in the way that it came to us. Yeah. Yeah. And then now him in total juxtaposition in Hit Monkey, it's a complete like departure. So what a wonderful way of showing the versatility of someone's ability to play two very opposite characters and he's deplorable in hit monkey i don't know if you've seen it yet or not i haven't no okay you got to watch hit monkey um it's marvel's show on hulu but it is an adult marvel show so Mm. would not make it on disney plus for obvious reasons when you watch it um right (laughs) but it's basically him riffing off of of fred tattashore Love Fred Tattashore. He's amazing. Uh, You know, uh, he's a god. (laughs) Fred Tattashore. Anyway, Fred Tattashore plays the hit monkey. All he does is talk as a monkey, and it's Jason riffing off of everything that he's saying, you know, doing, and unbelievable. Love it. Yeah, it's just different. different. That's that's super cool. I like that. Yeah, we're so blessed to be able to get to do this, though, right? Like, that we're able to... Right all this free range of characters and and whatnot have you did you have one that has left a mark on you that you're like one way or another whether it left a good mark or maybe it was something that was hard to shake do you have a character that you've played that has done that no i mean i play generally i play folks who don't necessarily have a lot of redeeming characteristics there's some chip on their shoulder or, you know, they're, they're not necessarily the nicest people. Um, so that, that can be a challenge to play. Um, but for me, it's pretty easy to package that and put it away when I'm done. I don't necessarily have any problems with that. Um, but, you know, most, most recently in Stargirl, playing somebody who is um, a moral beacon of light and hope and truth and morality that's been really fun because it is a departure from what i usually get to do um and that character is someone who is a father figure is a professorial figure is a mentor um and so i i really enjoyed that opportunity i i mean that i've tried tried to incorporate that into my life just to be a better person like that like that character is um, especially since, you know, the storyline of the characters, he, he goes through a lot of challenges. Um, you know, his family is taken away from him and then he's, he's sort of cast aside, um, for several years and yet he maintains that positive 
outlook on things. There's always, there's always hope within him, which is cool. Yeah. And do you think going forward, it's going to um, just even evolve into more um, for him? Have they let you know that that's going to be? I that's, I mean, that's not the plan at the moment, but I know that, you know, the showrunner has five or six seasons in his head. Um, you know, I have a pretty large presence in the second season. They're in the middle back half of se filming season three right now. Um, because there are so many characters in the DC universe, you, you may never see me again. You know, there's, there's so many stories to tell and, and I'm fine with that. I mean, I've had, I've had a great, great experience working with all of them. Uh, but you know, if, if I was able to go back, I'd be happy, happy about that too. So yeah. looking back, what would you tell your 20 year old self? Hmm. You know, at that point I was really, things were not going the way I thought they were going for me uh, on the pathway to becoming a professional athlete. And I was getting very jaded because there was ego, bringing it back to ego. You know, I thought I thought I was one of the best at my position playing the game at the college level. Right. And I very quickly learned that talent only takes you so far. Mindset is what makes the difference when talent margins are razor thin. Everybody's good at that level. Right. To Just to get to a division one program, you have to be a very good athlete to then go from the bench to being a starter that's a that's a razor thin margin a starter to being all conference or all american that's a very razor thin margin then going to the professional ranks that's a very thin margin where you repeat again bench starter all star that kind of thing um and my my maturity mentally wasn't where it needed to be but i was leading with ego bull in the china shop my abilities will get me through because they had up to that point in my life what i would have done is i would have taken myself and you know put an arm around me and said take a breath it's okay it's going to get worse before it gets better because everybody else is really good too so if everybody else is equal skill wise what's the x factor the brain right your mindset. And we weren't back then you weren't, you weren't, there weren't sports psychologists on college teams. There weren't, you weren't doing, you know, mindfulness exercises. And so I would have been, I would have told myself, Hey, find those books, find those speakers, reach, like get into that place where you can do the thing that needs to put you into the flow state so you don't have to just rely on your physical abilities because that's not enough. You're not talented enough to just get by on your talents. And I think the same is true in acting. I look around at other people who are way more talented than me, right? We, in acting, we talk about triple threats, right? I'm not a triple threat. I'm barely a single threat. And I think that I'm not so arrogant as to believe in auditions that I'm the best person I'm the best actor. There are other people who are always going to be better than me, but I might be the best professional. I might be the best collaborator. 
I might be the best person who understands how the puzzle pieces need to fit together to be of service to the story. And so all other things being equal, if it's between me and someone else, but they've worked with me before, I'm going to get the job because they know I'll show up on time, show up coachable, directable, flexible, prepared, ready to go, pleasant, not a jerk, right? I'm, I'm where they need to find me at any given time, right? And so I think all of that is learned from the lessons I didn't learn when I was 20. So I could go back and tell myself that at 20. And then maybe I'd just be retiring from a, you know, a long career as a professional soccer player. And maybe I never would have moved into acting. Who knows? I think you'd be happy either way. I think so. Yeah. So true that you said um, to have that mindset. I, I work with actors a lot on mindset. I've done energy work for almost 22 years now, and we do a lot of mindset work with Qigong and uh, deep guided meditations with breath work. And what comes in for those actors that are, A, very talented, but what comes in right after doing those sessions is so beautiful. Like, mm. sometimes they'll get things right in the room with me. They'll be like, I just booked this or, you know, um, and I just love it. I, I find it just fascinating. It's almost like a science yeah. for me, you know, like how, how, what can we find out next? What can we create now? I've worked with a, a few actresses that have like just boomed in the, in the last couple of years because of, you know, just a few tweaks in the mindset, but also how that plays into like, even on the end of the editor, because if you know, and you're set and you're prepared and your mindset is there, everything is lined up it's easier for the editor to do their job so you're most likely going to stay in the scene too because that's the thing right scared of is well will i be cut out well what were some of the things that would cut someone out yeah yeah i mean i think actors are you know as they're beginning or they're earlier in their career you're booking a lot of those occupational driven co-stars, right? The EMT, the barista, the florist, the Uber driver, like all of that stuff. And our ego, again, back to ego, our ego just has to get comfortable with the fact that at some point you are going to end up on the cutting room floor. Number one, happens to all of us. It's a rite of passage, don't take it personally. TV and film overshoot things. So they have stuff to cut. So they can put that puzzle together nicely. There's always pieces left over in, in a film or TV show. That's gonna happen. But the way that you can do it is worry less, less about your own performance and worry more about how you can serve the story and move the story forward. Because what's gonna happen then is when the camera is, is looking for you, you're gonna be engaged. You're gonna be listening. You're gonna be in in the flow with the scene partner, whether that's an A-lister, whether it's number 12 on the call sheet, whomever, it doesn't matter, versus the actor who's like, okay, when is it my turn? When's the camera coming to me? When is it gonna be my, me, 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 right? And then they're not listening. They're not actively listening anyway. They're passively listening, right? And, we, and you can see that. The editor can see that all easily, all the time. Yeah. You can totally see it and you can feel it too. You can just like, oh, he's thinking of his next line. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think the other thing is, is we, when we're starting out, we may not be given these larger opportunities with an emotional arc, a beginning, a middle and an end. And whether it's auditioning or on set, 
sometimes we, again, ego, we want to show someone we can act. We want to show we deserve to be here. And so then we overact a co-star, right? I, I use this with my students all the time. And I say, it's pretty simple. Here is your five word acting MFA for co-stars. Just say the damn words. Because we either believe you're the barista or we don't. We don't need the backstory that the barista got broken up with on the way to work that morning and all the customers have been crappy tippers and it's cold outside and the espresso machine is broken. We don't care. Here's your latte, Bob. Bob, here's your latte. Just say it. What we, how would you say it as the barista, right? The converse is also true when you are afforded these larger roles. And in our market, we're lucky that newer actors can sometimes get a one-line co-star and then a four-page series regular or, or guest star or what have you, a meaty thing the next day. And then sometimes because we've been conditioned into like, hey, it has to be grounded. It has to be real. It has to be slice of life. It has to be really organic. That sometimes we underact the guest stars, right? So we're overacting the co-star auditions and underacting guest star auditions. Okay, elaborate on that. Uh, so, so, so for the co-stars, we go, this might be the only audition I get for The Walking Dead. I need to show them all of the colors in the rainbow. No, you don't. You just need to show them the right color. You just need to show them you're believable in this environment as henchmen, right? Whatever it is. And then on the guest star, there's a psychology at play from casting and, and the writers and the producers. Usually when you get a guest star, you have two or three scenes assigned to you. And they're not assigned by accident. They just didn't randomly pick out this two pages and this three pages. They need to see certain things from this actor because a co-star could be cut out of an episode and it will not impact the storyline. You cannot cut out a guest star without impacting the storyline, right? So if you are Law & Order SVU and you're the main guest star, you're either like the victim survivor or you're the, you're the antagonist, assailant, criminal type, right? And so they're gonna need to see a couple of different things. Exposition, can you just say the words? You know, can you handle the flow of the dialogue showing you understand the genre? Walking Dead, Ozark, and The Resident are all one hour dramas that film here in Atlanta. They're all very different. The pacing of The Walking Dead is very different than the pacing on The Resident. Right, The grounded nature of Ozark is very different than the heavy um, urgency in, the re in a hospital of the resident. Okay, so can you just handle the dialogue? And then the second and the third scene, sometimes they're smushed together into one scene, but producers need to see chemistry and conflict, right? So if you are that victim, they need to see the conflict that you're going through now that you've escaped or the conflict in burdening your soul, un unburdening your soul because you feel like you were partially responsible for this assault that happened to you, right? You're psychologically traumatized from this. So they need to see that conflict happening. Maybe it's the conflict that's happening between colleagues, spouses, parent, kid. And so that's conflict and chemistry because of the relationship at play. So they might put that into one scene. So yeah, in guest stars, you can't, you can't just give us one flavor across two or three scenes. That makes so much sense too, because it's gonna have an arc to the story anyway, and you have to yeah. go with that flow of the arc for, yeah. especially a procedural like that, they're very dramatic. Yeah. So the tone of what you're working on too is so important. Versus right, yeah. 
nasal, then that would be completely, you know, faster than, you know, yeah. Get all the words right. Make sure you get all the words right, you know. Have to, have to, have to, have to, yeah. Well, this has been great. So what would you, on the flip side, what would you tell yourself, Alex, 20 years in the future, having done, <laughs> done what would you say? Oh, man, I would say, um, did, did you give yourself permission to take time off every year? I think for the last two years, I've done a really good job of scheduling in time off. I realize I get burnout. Everybody gets burnout, right? And so I don't teach in December. I take December off to allow myself a reset. This year has been a lot busier than I thought, even though I wasn't teaching. So I need to do better about that. And then in the summer, usually July, I take a road trip. I'm off the grid. I can't, I can't be reached. I'm not going to self-tape from the mountains of Montana. The job is not that important to me because acting is one part of who I am as a human, right? So if I miss that opportunity, it wasn't meant for me anyway. It's someone else's. They'll book it. They'll have a great time. I'll come back rested, refreshed, refocused. And my, my next set of auditions will be much better anyway than the one I rushed to get in just where I somehow magically got Wi-Fi signal, right? So I think actors, we're so afraid, especially when we're newer, of upsetting our agent, of casting, writing us in this magical, mythical black book, blacklisting, right? That doesn't exist. Um, they, they're too busy to care. The fact that you turn down one audition, they don't care. They've got another 12 roles to cast in that episode and another 5,000 headshots to go through to pick the people who need to tape. So yeah, schedule, proactively schedule your time off so you can be a, a more caring and empathetic and you know just a human human. So I would ask myself, hey, did you manage to stick to your time off? And being out in nature like that is not to get all woo-woo on you, but it's so healing for the soul and the mind. Like be feeling nature around you and realize that you're just a small part of this massive world within this humongous universe that goes on past what we can even imagine. And just to know, okay, I made my difference. I did what I needed to do. And this is time for me. Just yeah, it is. It is not not an accident that I take these trips with other actors, and all of us come back doing better work, and ending up reaping the rewards of that. I mean, both both years, all of the actors have come back and immediately had something tangible happen, or ha it, or it happens while we're on the trip as well. I've had right? that because the. Because the universe, the universe knows, the universe knows what, what you need or what you're open for, or what, you know, when you get in an alignment with that energy, the universe is like, Hey, I know you're driving from Wyoming to Montana, but the, your agent is going to call you now with good news. Right. It's great. I was at a magical, beautiful um, waterfall in Ireland when I got news of a, a show that would be shooting a couple weeks later, and um, it was going to be two overnight shoots. I'm like, perfect. I'm on that time frame anyway. Because <laughs> like, I'm great. Many hours ahead. I'm already there. I'm already there. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, and I was like, I told them, I'm like, I can't come to any callbacks. You know, I let them yeah. the agency know that beforehand. I'm like, I'm not there, but luckily. They knew who I was and yeah. Love it. You can do it. This has been lovely, Alex. 
Thank you so much for holding space with me and just being able to let people know just what's important is not always what we think it's going to be, you know? Agreed. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been lovely. I can't wait to Yay. see what you create in 2022. And by the way, I'm all about uh, travel. I've been lucky enough to travel the world. And um, one of the things I'm going to be doing for the new year is actually creating a creative energy retreat. So very cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm very excited with Qigong and um, a ladies retreat. So I think it's going to be a, a really fun thing people can look into and, and know about in the new year, which you can find in the show notes. Woo woo. Love that. Yeah. Thanks again, Alex. This has been wonderful. Thanks for having me. Yay. Thanks for tuning in to Undetoured Navigating the Artist's Journey. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and subscribe and leave a five-star review. And please check out our other episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And in return, my gift to you is a short, invigorating meditation to get your day started. You can find its link, along with other links to Undetoured, in this episode's description. Undetoured, Navigating the Artist's Journey was produced by Cabot Basden of Say What Sound Studio and hosted by Sloan Warren.